Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 68. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. And today I'll be taking a look at the 1978 film Knife in the Head. But first, let's play a tiny bit of catch up, shall we? Hi, how is everyone doing? I'm great. I've had a couple days off. I, uh, let's see. I watched The Killing Fields last night with my wife. And she only watched, like, <laughs> she she falls asleep during every movie she watches. So she watched uh, probably the first 30 minutes of The Killing Fields and then, like, the last five minutes of The Killing Fields. <laughs> so, um, if you haven't seen the Killing Fields, it's uh, there was a uh, there was a uh, basically a civil war taking place in Cambodia in the seventies, and um, the Khmer Rouge came into power to kill the whole lot of people. I mean, it was absolute genocide. But um, the Killing Fields, um, it's basically and it's insanely star-studded. You know, you got young. Sam Waterston with a beard. You got John Malkovich. You know, Craig T. Nelson's in there. Um, a lot of un, you know recognizable people, but the movie's basically about a uh, a New York Times photographer, journalist, and um, this sort of crew of other journalists that were on the ground in Cambodia. Right before uh, this, I don't know this uh, this like insurgent group just rises up and takes over the country, and you know uh, Sam Waterston has a uh, has a friend who's like a, he's a Cambodian guy who's his, who's sort of his guide, and he's also a journalist in Cambodia, and he kind of helps him get from village to village and place to place to get information, and he speaks English and he speaks Cambodian, you know Sam Waterston just speaks English. But then there comes a situation where everyone needs to evacuate the country and uh, Sam Waterston's homeboy has to get turned over to the Khmer Rouge. So, you know, that's that's like barely half of the movie. The like a giant chunk of the movie is his friend basically gets captured by Khmer Rouge and he's put into a concentration camp and. Uh, all this is based on like real people too. Like Sam Waterston is based on this guy named, uh, like an American New York times journalist named, uh, Sidney Shanberg and his friend, the Cambodian journalist, this guy named Dith Pran. Okay. So it's like all the American journalists have to go back to the United States and, uh, you know, Sam Waterston's character is able to get uh, Dith Pran's family out of the country and and but ha- most of the movie is just Dith Pran being put into a like communist concentration camp he's able to escape and you know and then he walks through the killing fields and it's just like it's like uh, like water uh, what do they call it like like rice paddies you know kind of fields where they're just sort of like ankle deep in water sort of like farmland and 
he's walking for probably days, and when he finally gets to the killing fields, it's just skeletons. It's just dead bodies for as far as you can see. And he's all alone. It's terrifying and really powerful. And uh, well, I guess I don't want to spoil it too much. but And it sounds really doom and gloomy. <laughs> and there's there's definitely big chunks of just human misery. But it's a really... It actually kind of ends on a high note. It's a really good movie if you haven't seen it. The Killing Fields. Um... Oh my goodness, who did, oh yeah, the, um, I was thinking about that day, uh, I was looking, I'm watching the movie and in the credits it said the music was done by uh, Mike Oldfield, who wrote Tubular Bells, the, you know, the song from The Exorcist, so, and I, the movie in this is really good too. See, if I still like collected vinyl, I would probably spend a couple of hours on eBay trying to look for a uh, mint condition copy of the Killing Field soundtrack, but I'm glad I'm wasting my money on other things nowadays. Anyways, what else is going? On? <laughs> um, oh, I should probably point out uh, if you. Uh, I'm just gonna do all my my random plugs right now. Okay, okay, cool. Um, I'm on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. That's where I'm primarily at. I'm on Twitter. At SF Podcast ATX, and I'm on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory. And all the stuff as of right now, this may change in the future. Uh, everything on Patreon right now is free. I mean, when I post stuff on there, um, I usually will let it just be available to patrons for about a week, and then I just put it up for free. So if you go to Patreon, you can watch videos, you can listen to more episodes, um, and uh, you can support the show, because it's just little old me here. Um, okay, that's the end of my plugs. But, uh, yeah, I'm also going to be doing a Patreon episode after this episode. So if you go over to patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory, I'm going to do an episode... Uh, just catching up with my week. I'll be talking about how much uh, Amazon sucks. And um, I went to the mall. What was that? I went to, what was it? Barton, Barton Creek Village. Barton Creek Mall, whatever the mall in Austin is called. I went there and I'll share my experience of going to a mall in 2023. What is that like? Um, it's, it, it sounds exactly like it sounds and well, without further ado, let's get into knife in the head. Um, I never seen knife in the head, you know, I, <laughs> I was at this lovely record store, uh, here in Austin called Waterloo records. I recommend you check it out if you're ever here. And in Waterloo Records, they have a pretty decent movie section as well. And I saw Blu-ray in the international section for a movie called Knife in the Head. And but the front cover didn't lead me to believe it's like some kind of slasher film 
or some type of, you know, exploitation film or whatever. So I'm reading the back and it sounded really interesting. So I put it on my list of movies to watch. And then I tried to order it on Amazon. I wanted to own the Blu-ray copy. And (laughs) a couple days go by and I get a notice that my Amazon package has arrived. I go and pick it up. And it's one of those sort of like uh, envelope, not envelope, but you know those like Amazon packages that they kind of, they're shaped like a pillow made of bubble wrap and they're white, you know what I'm talking about? Feels a little light, you know, so I, I get it home, I open it, there's nothing inside. They didn't even put the Blu-ray into the package before they sealed it, labeled it and sent it out. So I had to go through the rigmarole of contacting Amazon, and Amazon sucks. You can't just return shit or get your money back anymore. Return the defective item, and we will send you a new one. Or we'll give you a refund. Well, they didn't send me anything. There's nothing to send back. So now I'm in a position where I have to sit there for an hour... Get somebody on the, uh, get somebody on a, you know, you know, you know who they are and to get somebody, um, and communicate I had to, I'm writing to somebody through the app. I had to explain my situation. Okay. You're incompetent assholes that you have working at the Amazon warehouse didn't put my Blu-ray into the package before they sealed it and sent it out, okay? That's just gross incompetence as far as I'm concerned. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It always does. It's going to get worse. I, I I know people who work at the Amazon distribution centers, and they're all mentally ill people who have bad memories and... Bad motor functions. Okay? And I'm not being hyperbolic. Mentally ill people with poor hand-eye coordination and motor function. That's who's packing up your Amazon packages. But I uh, <laughs> I ended up just uh, renting Knife in the Head on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, you can rent it for a very low price. And, um, yes, let's jump into Knife in the Head, 1978, a film out of West Germany, directed by Reinhard Hauf, and it stars Bruno Gantz, and everyone knows Bruno Gantz. You know him if you, whether if you know you know him or not. Bruno Gantz played the character of Adolf Hitler. In the movie Downfall, you know, the the infinitely re-edited scene from Downfall where Hitler takes off his glasses with his shaky hand and nine, 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 nine. Everyone knows that scene. Okay. The guy who plays Hitler is the star of Knife in the Head. Except this is, this is 1978. Okay, this is a 
young, spry Bruno Gantz. Okay? You also might know Bruno Gantz from the uh, Lars Van Trier. Was it Lars Van Trier? It was Lars Van Trier. The Lars Van Trier a movie, uh, Jack, The House of Jack Built. Okay? The Matt Dillon serial killer movie, The House of Jack Built. Uh, Bruno Gantz is also in that. So. Unbelievably good performance. Like, everyone in this movie is fantastic. Every single person in this movie is fantastic. It's that type of realism where you don't feel like you're watching a play. You're not watching people who are, uh, you know what happens when you watch a play. with People who know the material so well that they get a little too relaxed with it. It's like it gets kind of sing-songy in the, in the dialogue, you know? You get none of that in Knife in the Head. Really good tone, beautifully shot. It's a great story. So let's get into Knife in the Head. We'll get into uh, Bruno Gantz. Bruno Gantz plays the character of Hoffman, and Hoffman is a scientist. He's a biogeneticist, okay? And uh, Hoffman's a scientist whose wife, Anne, who instead of being a dutiful wife to Er Hoffman, she instead is an adulterous commie who moonlights with communist youth groups. Okay, that's who she is. One night, while she's off gallivanting, Hoffman insists on going to pick her up from the youth hall where she works, which doubles as a headquarters for a far-left activist group. When he arrives, the place is swarming with police who have raided the place and are hauling people off or giving any kind of resistance. Okay, People getting thrown in paddy wagons. So Hoffman's Hoffman kind of forces his way into the building amongst the chaos to find Anne and get her out of there. When suddenly, as soon as he gets inside, he turns and looks at the camera and then bang! A gunshot rings out and then we have title card. And at this point, which is the very beginning of the movie, who shot Hoffman is unknown. Okay? So he ends up in the hospital with a gunshot wound in the back of his head. The bullet lodged behind his ear. He somehow survives being shot. So when Anne and her uh, low-key side piece and fellow Pinko Kami, the character of Volker, They show up at the uh, at the hospital, okay? And Volker, he's more of the, uh, he's more of a reactionary political type than Anne is, okay? She's basically slumming with Volker, okay? He's a younger, and, um, and he's full of sexy, reckless abandon, 
Okay. He's he's that guy. So and Hoffman is no slouch himself. He's you know, he's relatively easy on the eyes. But his character is he's an accomplished he's a he's a <laughs> he's a biogeneticist, a, a well-respected biogeneticist. Okay? And he's also an accomplished violinist. Okay? So you know, He's nothing to turn your nose up at, you know. But Anne is um, Anne is more of a politically motivated type of person than than Hoffman is. I think Hoffman kind of sees uh, Anne's political um, her sort of political hobby as more of a I don't know. You know, her going to a to a curves class or something. You know what I mean? So you could tell that she's more into this than than Hoffman is, and it's something she does on the side, and 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 Volker is something she does on the side. You know, and you know to Volker's. You know, <laughs> I understand Volker. You know, when you're young and handsome and rugged and, you know, that's the time to be a broke bum. That's where you can really pull in some some ass, really. You know, that's, that's when you can attract women that are uh, older than you are, maybe. Or maybe they're the same age, I don't know. Because she's, she does seem younger than Hoffman, but not... Not significantly younger. It's not like he's 20 years older than her or something like that. But, you know. You know, it's mentioned in the movie, like, he doesn't have a bank account and he hasn't had a job in a long time. All he, he He's just a political activist, which is kind of the worst thing you can be, really. A broke political activist. Um, but I understand women being attracted to that type of guy. Like when I was 20, 20, I think I was 20, 20 or 21, I was working at a, um, I was working at a children's clinic. I almost didn't say where I was, where it was or what the job was, but I was working at a children's clinic. It was like a, a small local children's clinic in Southern California. And there was this beautiful, let's call her Persian. She was this beautiful Persian woman. And she was, she was 25, which is really not a big age difference. But when you're 20 and a 25-year-old is sort of coming on to you at work, it's kind of nice. Okay. It's very nice. And, you know, she would come into the department I worked in. I worked in a medical records, uh, you know, office. And she'd stop in and she'd bat her eyes at me. And I'm like, hey, what's up, girl? And eventually, one thing led to another. You know, we end up at her place doing adult stuff. And grown people things. 
But when I'm in her apartment, it's like an it's an adult woman's apartment. You know what I mean? Like I was sharing a room in a house with a buddy of mine and his cat. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I was swimming in money or any kind of success or anything. But uh, she she wanted to slum it with a hot young guy, hot young broke guy. Uh, an opinionated, loudmouth, young guy, asshole. <laughs> I don't know. Is that who I was? Probably. But I was looking around her apartment, and it was kind of nice, kind of a nice place. But just outside her bedroom door was her framed degree from UCLA. Okay? That's a major accredited university. And, (laughs) you know, um, I could tell that she, she kind of, she kind of came from money. All of her family was back in uh, Iran, but you know, she was highly educated and idealistic and, but, uh, I don't know. She just, she just. She wanted to slum it up with some fucking random dude from the office. <laughs> so that that was weird. Um, you know, another thing she told me, she let me borrow some book that I didn't even read. It was, and the inside cover was autographed by her, by the guy who wrote it was her, which was her professor. She told me she uh, she fucked around with her professor too. Ooh, I'm like, you're dangerous. I'm like a dangerous older woman. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so Volker and Ann rush to the hospital. Hoffman is shot in the head. He's still alive, but he's, he's fucked up. He was shot in the head after all. So they rush to the hospital, and the doctor tells Ann that Hoffman will have to learn everything from scratch. Seeing, speaking, walking, writing. He's got to start from scratch, like a child. So now, enter lead detective Schules. Detective Schules, who I imagine was probably casted for the fact that he has like the most punchable face uh, ever. And... We're going to see a lot of Detective Schules. So once he gets there, Volker, who hates the police, okay, he's a cop-hating commie, and just gives Volker an earful. And Volker figures out pretty quick because he has a giant distrust of police and the media, which is not the worst thing in the world to <laughs> to be. Um, Volker figures out pretty quick that the newspapers aren't telling the whole story. They sort of gloss over the extent of Hoffman's injuries. Okay, they focus more on uh, Volker is this bad man who had to be shot, and it was necessary. And but Volker figures out pretty quick that this is all bullshit. Now it was reported that Hoffman attacked. 
a police officer with a knife inside of the youth center. He busted his way in. Police ran in. He he was confronted by a police officer. He pulled out a knife, and the officer had, um, well, it also it says that Hoffman stabbed the officer. Okay, so the officer defended himself by shooting Hoffman in the back of the head. So when Volker questions uh, nurses at the at the hospital and Detective Schultz about the whereabouts of this supposed officer Hoffman stabbed. You know, he's like, I read the paper. It says that the officer was stabbed, had to be hospitalized. Where is he? He, Did he not get brought to this hospital? Is he at another hospital? Where is he at? No one had an answer for him. That's very fishy. Where is this heroic policeman that was brutally stabbed in the line of duty? Detective Schulz will continue to come back to the hospital to harass Hoffman every chance he gets. And Hoffman, for a lot of the first part of the movie is, well, a lot of the movie is Hoffman in the hospital. Okay? He was, you know, he can't walk. He's lost um, the ability to use one of his arms. He has horrible nerve damage. He's heavily concussed. He can't speak. His brain can't form clear sentences. He's a mess. And this fucking cop comes in and is like talking shit to him. <laughs> like, look here, motherfucker. I know you're, I, I know the second you feel better. I'm going to come down here and I'm going to fucking put you in handcuffs and I'm going to send you to fucking prison. You piece of shit, asshole. <laughs> like, like Schulz is the worst. Like it's the, the, the West German police force in the late seventies was, it, it doesn't seem like they were the most, uh, by the book police organization in the world. So during one visit, Schulz brings in uh, the officer, the officer who got stabbed at one point. Okay, the character of uh, of Schurig, Officer Schurig, who's like a young cop. Okay, Schulz is a bit, you know, he's kind of a older, kind of experienced cop, and Schurig, he's he's kind of baby faced. He looks like a very young. Like Ray Winstone or something like that. So he brings in Schurig and, you know, and so, I mean, Hoffman allegedly stabbed Schurig. So Schulz brings him in to have Schurig ID Hoffman as the guy who stabbed him. And he does. He's like, yeah, he's like, is this the guy who stabbed you? And he's like, uh, yeah, that's him. (laughs) It's like, all right. So. In this whole Schulz coming to the hospital scene is actually pretty funny. There's there are moments of levity in this movie. This movie's kind of heavy, but there's really nice moments of levity. And one of them is Hoffman. Uh, he's being confronted by Schulz at the hospital, and 
So at this point, Hoffman's in a wheelchair. Only one of his arms work. Can't really speak very well. His brain can't like, like his motor functions. He can barely, he can't really write and he can't make his brain make his hand make words. Okay. His whole thought process is completely, is completely screwed. So since he can barely form sentences and he's partially paralyzed, the way he responds to Detective Shul's sort of harassment is he uses his good arm to kind of undo his hospital gown and kind of pulls it down low enough where he and and it's and in and they show this, like Hoffman just grabs his dick and just starts fondling himself. <laughs> and I mean, what I mean, what else are you gonna do? You can't be like, get the fuck out of my room. Okay, he doesn't he can't just say that. He can barely make noises with his mouth, you know, and he only has one barely functional arm. So he uses that arm to be like, see this dick? This dick says you better get going. Otherwise I'm coming or whatever. But I just thought that scene was really funny. You know, it was a def- little defiant moment on on Hoffman's part. So after this, we're introduced to the character of Ann Littner. Don't you love all these German names? Ann Littner, who's, he's a lawyer, older gentleman. And he's, he's a lawyer and friend and sort of father figure to Hoffman and Ann. And to a certain extent, Volkner and some of the other sort of commie activist people. Anytime they get in trouble, they send Ann Littner over there to kind of get them out of jail and give them legal legal representation and whatnot. And Ann Littner, he's he's in a bunch of scenes at the hospital. You know, he's very he's very caring and nurturing for Hoffman. He's really he's very patient with him. Okay, he's he's there for him as a friend, but he also knows that Hoffman was done dirty and he wants him to get some kind of justice. But he knows it's going to take time, you know, given Hoffman's condition. So there's one scene where Hoffman's doctor, uh, Dr. Grosk, I like Dr. Gross. He's freakishly tall and has a really weird face. He kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, in The Big Lebowski, there's the, the three nihilists. Okay, there's there's the fucking uh, there's Flea, there's the uh, the main nihilist guy who uh, he was he played the Russian in Armageddon, <laughs> uh, and then there's like the really really tall guy. He looks like the really really tall guy, but I like Doctor Gross. He's a he's a very he. He's a very cool head in this movie. And I would say like most of the people in this movie are unusually calm. Uh, almost cold. But it really, I mean, from what I've been told, uh, German people are generally uh, perceived as being very cold in nature. Which I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's that's somebody looking at Germans through sort of like a Western American lens, you know, because, you know, 
North America is just, I mean, Canadians included, you know, you know, it's South America, North America, you know, America, Mexico, kind of like, we're, we're all pretty loud and obnoxious. So I imagine when we look at Germans and they're not like us, we're like, wow, what's wrong with those fucking icy motherfuckers? But, um, but I like that. I like that sort of, it, it's almost like subtext, you know, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a very, it's, it's like a unseen backstory to these people. Also, it gives the impression of, um, competency, you know, even Schulz and his, uh, his sort of like cop goon, uh, sidekicks. They're all very quiet, very cold and very stoic. You know, it's hard to get a read on them. And Dr. Grosk is like that, but Dr. Grosk, he's, he's a good guy. He's, he's on Hoffman's side. He's the guy who performed his brain surgery, and he's the guy who's overseeing his medical care at this hospital. And Hoffman's in there for quite a while, as you would imagine, recovering from a gunshot wound to the head. So we get a scene where uh, Dr. Grosk is in his office with Hoffman and, uh, and Littner. And he's showing him x-rays of Hoffman's head. Okay, he's showing him the impact and the trajectory of the the bullet that hit his skull. And where it ultimately lodged and whatnot. And the doctor and Antlitner point out that when Hoffman was brought to the hospital, that on top of having a bullet lodged in his head that passed through his brain... He also had a concussion that was, I don't know how they even know this, <laughs> but it sounds legit. They're able, they're just able to know that, oh, you have a, you had a concussion other than the one from the bullet that hit you in the skull. You know, uh, Hoffman had bruising on his face and body. And he got hit in the eye really bad, and he has, like, nerve damage in his eye. And, and that's really a testament of Bruno Gantz's, like, acting. His his acting in this is fantastic. Okay? Like, this movie is sort of like, um, I don't know. It's like, a, it's, like, it's like somewhere between the Harrison Ford films. They're both Harrison Ford films. The movie regarding Henry and... The Fugitive, it's kind of a mixture of those two types of uh, film, you know, you have, they're both dramas, but one's more of like a, like a whodunit kind of thing, and the other one's more of like, you know, a man gets taken out under uh, un, unfortunate circumstances, and then he has to kind of build himself back up, and he's a different person at the end than he was in the beginning. So Hoffman had bruising all over his body, his face was beaten up, and he had a concussion. So what does that mean? So between Antliner and Dr. Gross, they're like, don't you see what happened here? Because the police aren't going to investigate this. You were beaten first, and then they rolled you over and shot you in the back of the head. This wasn't self-defense. This wasn't some cop who was trying to protect himself from you coming at him with a knife. And even at this point, 
Hoffman is like, did I attack a cop with a knife? I don't know. Because his memory's all fucked up. Okay. They were like, you definitely didn't try to attack a cop with a knife. Because they, they do find out that, and this takes t- like time to get this information. They find out that they didn't, they never found a knife at the scene. So now we're sitting at a moment in the movie where there's clearly a conspiracy going on. Okay. There's a conspiracy on the part of the police and the media. Okay. They basically a young police officer loses control, uses excessive force on a citizen. And I mean, what else do you call it? He tried to murder a citizen. He abused his power and the police tried to cover it up. You know, they manipulated the story, fed false information to the press and, uh, basically character assassinated Hoffman who did nothing wrong. He wasn't even part of this political group. He just got caught in the middle of it. And now they want to paint him as some type of anti-government terrorist. Sound familiar? Does that sound like today? (laughs) It does. It does. Um, At the same time, Volkner and his group of uh, commie young people, impressionable activist friends, are now propping up Hoffman as this martyr for their cause. He's an example that they can point to and be like, see, the police are out of control. They're murdering citizens. And now they, I mean, they're pretty much on to the fact that the press lied about what happened because in the press they said that you know Hoffman got some bumps and bruises but you know he you know and but he didn't get bumps and bruises he got shot in the head and horribly beaten that's not really bumps and bruises and then they tried to then they painted this this young cop as this hero you know you, you know defending himself against some crazy political psycho with a knife and that's it's not the case at all but that's and all this all this is you know now now Hoffman knows now he knows what's going on he he knows that the you know uh, Schulz is not going to say he's he's convinced himself and those around him that Hoffman is some kind of political terrorist who needs to be brought to justice, even though he knows Hoffman is innocent. I, I, I don't know if he actually... Does he know? I don't know. It's, it's not clear what Schulz knows and doesn't know, but he thinks he knows what he knows because he... He basically told himself a story and that's the story he's going to believe is real. And that's that this man who never did anything to anybody 
magically decided to knife a cop one day. And he's tied to some, you know, activist group. (laughs) So, not long after this, Schultz comes back to the hospital and attempts to take Hoffman into custody. But Dr. Gross, very calmly, you know, if they would have, if this was American, if this was an American film, Dr. Gross would have been, I don't know, played by some insufferable short actor who's good at uh, kind of pretending to be angry, but also kind of comes off as intellectual, but really just a phony. You know what actors I'm talking about. There's a lot of them. Like um, in America, the American version of Knife in the Head, it would be like uh, Dr. Gross would be played by like Stanley Tucci. You know, one of those people that people think are like, like he's some sort of affluent intellectual man. But he's, he's, he's an actor. He's, he's a fool. Stanley Tucci also played a, a Nazi in a movie too. Why would you do that, Stanley Tucci? Why would you play a Nazi? Hmm? Anyways. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, Dr. Gross tells him, like, you can't take this man into custody. He's, he's, he's prone to seizures. He's in no condition to be brought out of this facility. He's still recovering. And at this point, Hoffman has made um, a great deal of progress in his recovery he's regained his ability to walk he has a leg he has one leg that's a little wonky but he can walk he's slowly developed a little bit more um, control and dexterity in his in his arm that was pretty much useless when he came into the hospital and he's kind of got some of his speech back He's gotten some of his ability to do more fine motor, his fine motor skills. He's kind of been developing since he's been in the hospital. It's like, I don't think he's going to ever become like a uh, classical violinist again, but, you know, at least he's able to get around. And, you know, Dr. Gross is like, you can't take this man. You, you have no, you have no jurisdiction. You can't just take a sick man out of a hospital and put him in handcuffs and, so Schulz is determined to make Hoffman look like a terrorist monster. He wants him to be the terrorist monster guy that he's portrayed in the papers. And knowing the police are coming after him, uh, Anne, Volker, and even, I mean, basically it just, everyone involved, Schulz has his sights on them. Okay. So, he wants to get Hoffman because he's Mr. Terrorist Man that's in the papers. And he's got to get him. He's got to get his wife because his wife is harboring a communist terrorist cell <laughs> inside of a youth center. And he's going to get Vol- uh, Volker because he's... He's kind of your everyday scallywag, dipshit, fucking activist douchebag who um, is just going to be in and out of jail for the foreseeable future until he probably ends up killing somebody himself. 
And they even want to come after the youth hall. There's this, there's this whole sort of, there's this group of, you don't even know who these people are. But there's people like kind of, there's like these men who come around the youth hall who are like surveying it. And um, some, you know, these pe- there's people who want to like buy the youth hall tear it down and make it into something else. Like it's definitely a conspiracy (laughs) is what I'm saying. So at one point, uh, Volker, uh, he gets thrown in jail for handing out flyers that sort of reveal that the, the, well, one, the youth center is being sold to this like pharmaceutical company. And, also, the flyer uh, mentions uh, killing police is a good idea. So this gets him some time in jail. That's weird, Adam. Yeah, I know it's weird because other countries don't have the First Amendment. People think they do. A lot of people think they do. What are you talking about? People say all kinds of crazy shit in other countries. I'm like, yeah, I know they do. But there's... there's consequences that we don't have here. I mean, we're slowly developing consequences, but other countries don't have the first amendment. Not, not like the United States does. Like you can, you can make a flyer that says kill the cops (laughs) and you're not going to get jail time for it. I mean, you go back 40 plus years people made albums about killing the police and became millionaires off of it then you fast forward 40 years and those same people are still railing against the police how the system is against them and they don't mean that you can't possibly mean that while you're sitting in a mansion (laughs) but I digress so Hoffman understands what's going on now, okay? Volker's in prison. He's in jail. He's not going to be in there forever. He's in jail. He knows this detective is uh, not going to... He'll stop at nothing to take him down. And he knows that the the, the better his condition, the more his, his condition improves. That Schulz is, he's, he's, you know, it, it puts him more in a position where Schulz and his... You know, in his in his uh, cop goon guys, like they're they're coming for him, and they're coming after his wife too. So Hoffman sees like, well, okay, maybe the best thing for me to do is to escape from the hospital, get the hell out of here, vanish. Because it's not like he's out of, it's not like he's under arrest or something. It's not like. And, and people do get, and the, I mean, prisoners do go to civilian hospitals. I don't know if you knew that. My mother works in a hospital, okay? In Central California. And Central California is just like, if you just triangulate where all the really bad Northern California prisons are, like in the center of it is like where my my mother works. So anytime some prisoners, some gang-banging, rapist, child-trafficking, murder guy <laughs> stubs his toe in his cell. Where do they send him? They don't send him to some jail hospital. No, they send them to a 
civilian hospital. Okay. So you, I mean, you name it. She's gotten people from Pelican Bay, which is like one of the worst of the worst prisons in California and Folsom, San Quentin. Um, there's kind of a club fed prison for rich people. Not too far away from there, too. So it's not like Hoffman's a prisoner, but the police definitely want to question him and get him on something. So he Hoffman figures, like, I'm just going to escape. So, and at this point, which could be, it could be six months. It could be a year since Hoffman was shot. It's not totally clear. But Hoffman manages to regain his ability to walk and speak for the most part. So one day he steals one of Dr. Grosk's lab coats, one of his doctor jackets, and cobbles together enough of a disguise to sneak out of the hospital. And once he gets out, he ends up meeting up with Anne, and they go out to uh, Ann Littner's country home. It's a great little place in the middle of the German countryside. And they're not there for very long before Schulz and his Gangster cop cronies eventually find him, and Ann Littner manages to get him sent back to the hospital and not to jail. Because Shul shows up and he's like, "You escaped from the hospital. We're taking you in." And Ann Littner's a, a lawyer. He's, he's like, "I already called an ambulance. Okay, he's going to be taken by the ambulance. He's not going to be taken by you." He outsmarts and outmaneuvers Schulz for now. But, I mean, these guys came for Hoffman at Antlener's house, like, in the middle of the night. And you know what I mean? Like, these fucking creeps are out there, and they they want Hoffman. It's, you know, they'll, they'll stop at nothing. And eventually, Hoffman is well enough where he can leave the care of the hospital. But as, you know, as Johnny Cash once said... You know, he left a, a wiser, weaker man. You should be impressed that I can just effortlessly quote Johnny Cash. Are you impressed? You should be. So Volker also gets released from jail around this time because he's just kind of out of the movie for a while. So Volker gets released from jail. But at this point, Hoffman knows that once he gets out of the hospital, he's like, well, <laughs> what's his life post Hospital care. I mean, he's 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 cooking for Volker, who's banging his wife. His wife, Anne, doesn't really love him anymore. Even when the ever-present Schulz materializes out of the shadows. You know, um, Hoffman surrenders to him. But Schulz gleefully tells Hoffman that they're not even after him anymore. They moved on to somebody else. So the police used Hoffman. Wrongfully villainizing him in the press. Faking stories. Saying he was shot in the head because a cop was defending himself. Saying that he stabbed a cop. Saying that he's a terrorist in league with communists. It's mentioned that Hoffman is an accomplished violin player, which he can't do anymore. Because, you know, his arm's all fucked up. 
and his brain probably can't compose, let alone read music at this point. But not only not only has he has one arm that works correctly, he has a wonky foot. Uh, he, he's he's basically uh, he's basically Kevin Spacey's character in uh, the Usual Suspects. He's like verbal Kent, right? So. So his his future as a violin player that's out. His job as a scientist, as a biogeneticist, that's most likely a thing of the past too. I don't think he can just go back to his job. So what does he have now? Doesn't really have his health. <laughs> he doesn't have his wife. He doesn't have his career and he doesn't have his love of music. And the the cops have moved past him. They're not interested in basically uh, <laughs> framing him for a terrorist act anymore. They're just like, yeah, this is taking too long. We need. We're just gonna move on to somebody else because they they had nothing. They knew they had nothing, but they were hoping they could pin something on him to, I don't know you know make make uh make it seem not as bad <laughs> make it seem not as bad that uh, that a cop shot a citizen in the head you know they basically ruined his life and now that it's not advantageous to arrest him for what whatever ends they were going for they just were like, yeah, we're not even interested in even trying to investigate you or arrest you or anything. So have a good day, Mr. Hoffman. So Hoffman has nothing now. And as and if if you if you ever listen to David Allen Coe, <laughs> I can effortlessly quote David Allen Coe. David Allen Coe did an album with uh, Dimebag Daryl, R.I.P., and uh, and and Vinnie Paul from Pantera. Uh, they did this album called Rebel Meets Rebel, and they have a song called "A Man Who Has Nothing Has Nothing to Lose." Go check that out if you like that. It's, it, there's a bunch of Confederate flags all over the album cover, so if you get all knee jerky about that, then don't even bother looking it up. But, <laughs> but. Point being is Hoffman is a man who has nothing. So he has nothing to lose. So what does he have? Revenge. That's what he has now. He's got revenge on the mind. So Hoffman goes to the the young cop's apartment. The, the, the cop that shot him. Officer Schurig. The cop who said that Hoffman stabbed him and then he had to shoot in the head. But now we know this young cop uh, severely beat Hoffman, used excessive force on him, and then tried to murder him. Shot him in the head. But he didn't kill him. How scary is that? You beat the fuck out of somebody and you shoot him in the head? Speak for some kind of sick pleasure? Wasn't self-defense. Did it for some kind of sick power trip thing. 
And then that same guy ends up at your front door. After a little time passes and you think everything's fine. It's an unsettling feeling. So he goes to uh, Shurig's apartment. And Hoffman's just disarmingly calm when he gets there. When the cop opens the door, Hoffman lets him in. Well, he lets himself in, rather. It's kind of strange. And I have a theory about the ending of this movie. So pretty much when he gets to the apartment, uh, initially the cops, I guess, I guess wife opens the door. Girlfriend or wife. And she asks, like, are you a reporter? And then later when he gets inside the apartment, he's, she's like, oh, no, you're, I know who you are. You're the, you're the, you're the guy that my husband shot. It's like, did you know that when he came to the door or did you just realize that after he got inside? I don't know. It was kind of weird. Because the most, all the movies very carefully written. All the scenes are very precisely laid out. But then we get to this end scene and things are kind of weird and people say stuff that's kind of off and you're like, why Why would you say like, if a man shows up at the door and you're like, uh, are you a reporter? You look kind of familiar. And then you, and then like two seconds later, you're like, oh yeah, you're the guy who stabbed my husband and then he shot you. It's like, did you, like, when did you realize that? You should have realized it when he was at the door. I don't know. But I'll tell you about my theory about the ending of the movie. But so let me tell you what happens. <laughs> Shows up the door. And Hoffman is, you know, you know, the Shurig's like, what are you doing here? What do you want from me? And Hoffman's like, just kind of like, you know, the, he just kind of waltzes past Shurig and his wife and his dog and just walks into the house, like, lets himself in. And he walks in and he goes and sits down in the living room. <laughs> and on his way in, Hoffman sees that the cop's uniform is hanging up on like a on the wall like on a coat rack his uniform with his belt and gun in holster also that's not something any uh, any gun owner would ever do by the way nobody takes their holster off with the gun in it and like hangs it up that's not really unless it's for like decorative purposes like you have a cool old six shooter instead of an old cool gunfighter leather cowboy belt holster thing my stepdad did that. He had one next door. We had a, like a stone fireplace. And he had a... <laughs> Actually, he had a double-barrel shotgun. A sawed-off double-barrel shotgun. <laughs> and this really beautiful lever-action rifle. Um, and the sight on it, the front sight was made from like a copper penny. It was weird, and it had this etching on the side saying that this was like a rare rifle. It was made in the like late 1800s or something. I don't know. But that was above the, the fireplace, and then next to the fireplace, there was like a cowboy holster with a pistol in it, or a revolver, rather. But none of them were loaded, but they were just more like decorative. So I guess, I guess people do just have guns just sitting around, <laughs> posed in their houses. Um, Actually... He also, my stepdad, 
on, on a personal note, he had a framed picture. It's basically a sketch. And it's basically sort of the, like a, uh, it's a sketch, but it's like a collage of different poses of John Wayne. There's one him kind of standing, looking like a badass, probably from like Rio Bravo or something. There's him like, uh, there's him actually firing like an action shot of him firing like a lever action rifle. And there's like an older picture of him in a cowboy hat and stuff like that. And beautifully hand drawn picture. And that was like also sitting next to the fireplace. I remember as a kid and, and actually recently, not even a week ago, my mother found it in storage and uh, she sent it to me. Now it's here in the studio with me. So I got my my stepdad's John Wayne sketch. Uh, he didn't draw it like a like a professional artist drew it. So it looks amazing. Uh, I have that in here in the studio with me. So, anyways, Hoffman goes in the apartment, walks past the, uh, the officer's gun hanging from a coat rack. And him and the wife, and him and, uh, well, Shurig and his wife are kind of a little uneasy, but they're sort of like, like, what, what is, like, what is this man doing here? He doesn't seem to be threatening in any way, and maybe he just wants to talk. I don't, I don't know. A lot of time has passed. Like, what is he doing here? Is he here for some type of closure of some kind? Like, what does he want? And Hoffman eventually starts questioning the cop, like, like, why did you crack me in the skull, you know, fucking up the nerves in my eye? My eyes, now I have a lazy eye. I got a bunch of other kind of motor function problems. I have brain problems. Fucking up the way I talk. Why did you beat me up and then shoot me? An unarmed man. On the floor posing no threat to you. Why did you do that to me? Asshole. <laughs> so. You know. And, uh, and Hoffman's like. You know. I. <laughs> he's like. I recovered from my wounds. And he's pointing this giant scar on his head. He's like. Well, he's like. Let's see your wound. And the cop actually pulls up his shirt. And he has like a bandage over his lower part of his abdomen. And he removes the bandage. And there's like a scar there. It looks like an appendix scar from like an appendectomy. Except it's on the opposite side of his stomach. And Hoffman looks at that and he just smiles. He's just like, wow. You even went to the point to cut yourself. To make this lie work. That's amazing. Like he's just blown away by that. And he's he's still wearing a bandage over it. It's like that's super sketchy. It's like a year went by. You're still wearing a a bandage over like a closed little like two inch scar on your abdomen. After like a year has gone by. Hoffman got shot in the head. He had to do brain surgery. He was probably in a coma at some point. He had to learn how to walk and talk and speak and feed himself and all that shit. 
He had to regain use of one of his arms and his legs, like all this shit. And this guy still has like a bandage. And we're saying, I don't know. That part was weird. Didn't make sense. Like I said earlier, this whole end scene is very strange. So he's like, wow, you actually probably knifed yourself in order to make, in order to get away with this lie of this like self-defense fucking lie you came up with. He's like, he was just, wow, that's amazing. And for some reason, the whole mood in the room changes where Shurig's like, they both start smiling at each other. He's, they're like, huh, isn't the world crazy? He's like, wait a minute. He's like, I'll be right back. And Shurig leaves the room. He's like, I'll be right back. He runs out of the room, and for some unknown reason, he runs to the kitchen to collect... Um. And not sneakily, he just is casually, he grabs uh, a couple of items. He grabs a hammer, he grabs a, like a large, like a, like a large wood, like file, like a wood handled metal file, like a, like a rasp and a butter knife. And while he's in the kitchen doing that, Hoffman locks Shurig's wife slash girlfriend, whatever she is, locks her in the bedroom. But he locks the door from the outside. Isn't that weird? Who has a a lock on their bedroom door that locks from outside in the hallway and not inside? Any Anybody from Germany? <laughs> Anyone from Germany can explain that to me. I don't understand what that is. So, <laughs> locks the wife in the, uh, in the bedroom. And he grabs the gun out of the holster on the coat rack. And when Shurg comes back into the hallway, Hoffman has a gun on him. And Shurg starts begging for his life. And yeah, it's weird. He like he has the he has the file and the hammer and the and the butter knife, and he, you know, he's like, he drops him on the floor, and he he realizes that, okay, this guy's probably gonna fucking kill me, maybe kill my wife. So he's kind of like begging Hoffman, like, eh, don't kill me, don't kill me, please. And Hoffman's like, okay, why did you lie? And okay, the response the cop gives, I don't know if this is a lost in translation thing. I don't. It doesn't seem that way because the subtitles. Whole movie's in German, right? But the subtitles seem pretty cut and dry, very clear of like what is being said. But Hoffman has a gun on him. The guy's on his knees, and the guy's and he's like, "Why did you lie?" And Schurg says, "Nobody ever asked, but it was exactly like this. It doesn't matter anymore. Who cares now?" And Hoffman says, I do. And Schurig's like, he says, you're crazy. And Hoffman says, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And then the movie ends. Does he shoot him? Does he not shoot him? I don't know. What did he mean by, he says, why did you lie? And he's like, I don't know, No, nobody ever asked it's like what do you mean no one ever asked like nobody asked you to lie about 
the like shooting an unarmed man or nobody asks you why you lied. And it's weird. That whole bit of dialogue is very strange. It's sort of like this broken. It's this it's it's kind of like a broken dialogue almost like it's it's because throughout the movie as Hoffman's regaining back his ability to speak his words are he, he doesn't quite get a full grasp of speaking again he probably there's certain words he can't he can't find the actual word that he's looking for and he, you know, he his he almost sounds like he speaks a. It's almost like German's his second or third language or something like that. Okay, but it's it's part of his his brain's fucked up. And this whole end scene is like, why is everyone talking so fucking weird? How come, how come the wife doesn't immediately recognize Hoffman when he shows up at the apartment? How come they just let him stroll into the house? Why don't they, why, why isn't a police officer who has this man who may or may not be a threat in that, why does he just find with his gun just being on the wall in plain sight and can be easily grabbed? You know, why is his stab wound still bandaged after a year? It's not like he has a colostomy bag or something. How come he left the room to grab a butter knife, a file, and a hammer. How come he? How come Hoffman was able to lock the wife in the bedroom, and the lock is on the outside of the bedroom? And wh- why do we get this weird stilted dialogue? It's really weird. And then the last word said in the movie is, "Shurig's like." You're crazy. And Hoffman says, maybe, maybe not. What does this all mean? Well, part of me wonders if the end was real or not. Like, was this some kind of fantasy inside of Hoffman's broken brain? You know, because nothing like this in the entire movie is like no other scene is like this. Every bit of dialogue is very clear and concise and, uh, you know, it's everything is, this movie is very, <laughs> it's very detailed and plotted out. Like every scene makes sense. Every character makes sense. Everyone has a character arc. Everything makes sense except this last scene. Everyone talks weird. They just let him into the apartment. The gun is out in the open the lock on the bedroom door, the, and here's an interesting thing. When Hoffman is in the hospital, he, he's sitting there with, uh, Ann Lindner and they're doing these sort of like little flash card games. He does, he does all, he, like, he has to do all these card, these little games so he can remember how to, you know, when he sees like a picture of, and here's interesting, very specific, he, he like Ann Lindner is sitting there helping him. He shows him a picture of a file, a, a wood-handled metal file, and he's like, "Okay, what is this? Write down what this is." And and actually, he 
okay, wow, now it's all coming back to me. So originally he has a, he shows him a picture, a little card, and it's a picture of a butter knife. And he's like, what is, he's like, this is a knife. He's like, draw a knife. And then Hoffman draws a file. And he's like, and Andler's is like, no, that's incorrect. He's like, you drew a file. He's like, you had to draw this picture right here of a butter knife. And what does Shurig run to the kitchen and get for? And we don't even know why. He grabbed a file. He grabbed a butter knife and a hammer. I don't know what the significance of the hammer is. Perhaps communist iconography, perhaps. I don't know. So my theory is at the end of the movie is may or not be real. I think maybe after Hoffman is cast aside by the these in these harassing police officers that want to have nothing to do with him anymore his wife wants to have nothing to do with him anymore and he he's out of the care of the hospital he has no one he has no job he has you know he's forever changed i'm think i'm thinking maybe after all of this hits him he has some sort of mental break where he has like a fantasy where he goes to the cops apartment and maybe kills him maybe he doesn't i don't know so I have a theory. I'm still working on it. Maybe the end of the movie takes place inside of Hoffman's head. I don't know. You watch it for yourself. Tell me what you think. Um, it's a great ending. The The ending, I was definitely pleasantly surprised. But it's sort of full circle, too. You know, Hoffman ends up becoming what the lying, bootlicking press said he was by the end. You know what I mean? They said he was a cop killer. They said he was this terrorist. They said he was all these things. And then after he loses everything, he just decides to become the thing that, that he wasn't. He, you know, he became the lie. Very interesting. It's like, why? We're always looking for the why, but I saw this well, this great, um, this this great sort of uh, Q and A thing with uh, director William Friedkin. Rest in peace. Um, it was at this uh, like uh, film school in New York, and sometimes you put things in movies that would, and you just don't explain it on purpose. You want people, you put things in there so people wonder. But people usually look at those things and be like, well, why? Why Why did? You, why is that in the movie? It's so interesting. And everyone puzzles over it. And Billion Frames, he's like, I don't know. Sometimes you just put shit in movies for no reason. It's that simple. Like, for instance, at the end of um, The French Connection, you know, uh, fucking Gene Hackman's chasing the fucking guy down. He dips and he runs across the room, dips around the corner in a doorway, and you don't, he disappears around the corner. And then the movie just cuts to black and you hear a big gunshot. And it's like, well, did Gene Hackman kill the guy? Did he not kill the guy? What happened? And then it goes to credits. William Friedkin is asked about this during this uh, this thing he's doing. And he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, that had, he's like, we just put that in there for no reason. Because at the end, they were like, well, what do you want at the end? And he's like, I don't know. I just want everything to kind of end with a bang. And whoever was editing the movie was like, took that literally. And they're like, well, we don't see what happens. What does Gene Hackman do at the end of it? We don't really know. He just disappears around the corner. 
while pursuing someone with a gun. It's like, well, what happens? And they just added in literally the sound of a bang. And they, the, somebody just took one freaking literally, like, I want to end the movie with a bang. And they just inserted the sound of a bang. And it's like, he's like, I don't know. I wasn't trying to be cryptic or mysterious or anything. I just, they just, we just threw that in there. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes you just put stuff in the movies and you just don't explain it. You don't need to explain it. Who gives a shit? Leave things up in the air as a mystery. And I feel like maybe there's a little bit of the, that in this movie, in Knife in the Head. You know? It's like throwing the straw hat in the back seat in The French Connection. Like, people don't... I don't feel like everyone understands what that means. Like, it's, it's a thing that the undercover cops do to indicate to other cops in the area that there's undercover cops working in this area. See the straw hat in the back window? That means that's an undercover cop car. Don't approach them. Don't fuck with them. Yada, yada, yada. They're cops. They're undercover. But, but no one explains that in the in the French Connection, you know. Anyways, do I recommend Knife in the Head? Yes, I do. I recommend it very much. I like this movie a lot. It's very cool. I just came up. I just happened upon it. And I really, really enjoy it. And I really uh, want to dip into some more of um, director Reinhard Hoff's movies, and I have a deeper appreciation for uh, for actor Bruno Gantz. Uh, rest in peace. Well, I think that's going to be it for me, guys. Go check out Knife in the Head. It's very cool. I enjoy it very much. I'm going to be doing a Patreon episode uh, right after this. And I'm just going to be talking about random stuff, nothing in particular. So that should be fun. <laughs> I'm just going to be shooting the shit. So if you need to get a hold of me, you can do that on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. You can find me on Twitter at SF podcast ATX. And you can support the show and watch and listen to a bunch of free stuff over there at patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory. This is a Skeleton Factory podcast, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. I am Adam. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.